Oh, you're not quite ready. I thought he was ready. I have a hard time thinking. Can you get us going again? That's ready, but he's not. Well, you don't have to be ready. Yeah. Three to thirteen. I'll read it. Good. If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments so as to carry them out, then I shall give you rains in their season, so that the land will yield its produce and the trees of the field will bear their fruit. Indeed, your threshing will last you for you until grape gathering, and grape gathering will last until sowing time, and thus you will eat your food to the full and live securely in your land. I shall also grant peace in the land so that you may lie down with no one making trouble, make, no one making you tremble. I shall also eliminate harmful beasts from the land, and no sword will pass through your land. But you will chase your enemies, and they will fall before you by the sword. Five of you will chase a hundred, and a hundred of you will chase ten thousand, and your enemies will fall before you by the sword. So I will turn toward you, and make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will confirm my covenant with you. And you will eat uh, the old supply, and clear out the old because of the new. Moreover, I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul will not reject you. I will also walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, so that you should not be their slaves. And I broke the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. Okay, this is if you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments so as to carry them out, and the blessings that would come. Now, I think we can sort of look at these blessings kind of in in sections. Um, In 4 and 5, what's the blessing? Yes, rain and good harvests. Now, in pagan religions, the rain was... Who was responsible for rain? The rain god. Which was sometimes called Baal, sometimes called Hadad, um, and so forth. But if they obey God and he gives them rains, what it really means is that God is the one responsible for the rain. He's the provider. And he will give them rain so that they will have abundant crops. How abundant will the crops be? Year-round. Yeah, it's like there's going to be, you know, the farmer's going to have to work non-stop to gather in all the crops. You know, because they kind of like the, the reaper overtakes the sower and it's just, it just round the clock, reaping and sowing and whatever. Very abundant. So uh, it's very uh, impressive what the Lord can do. And then in 6 to 8, what's he promising them? Peace and security. To the point where what? Even going to take the beasts out of the land. Alright, he's going to give them peace from beasts. That, that seems so out of our experience, you know, because we rarely worry about, you know, getting eaten by a wild beast when we uh, go to town or whatever. Uh, but they did. I mean, there were various beasts. I mean, I mean, even in the Jordan thicket, there were lions and things like that. So, I mean, that was a, a relevant concern for them. Uh, it's not just a joke here. Um, and what else would he give them uh, peace and, and uh, security from? Yeah, they're enemies carrying a sword to the point where they could, five of them would chase a hundred. They, they could be outnumbered 20 to 1 and they'd still win. Or a hundred of you will chase 10,000. They could be outnumbered 100 to 1 and they'd still win. Because who gives the victory is the Lord. He's the one who reverses the odds. So, you know, you won't be suffering war, but your enemies will. That's the peace and security and victory 
that he that he's promising to his people. And then nine and ten, what's the blessing? Yeah, they'll be they'll be fruitful. They'll be multiplied. They'll be prospered. We might say. And then in eleven to thirteen, what's the blessing? with them. I'll make my dwelling among you. I'll walk among you. I'll be your God. You'll be my people. Um, so, you know, they've got all these blessings if they keep his covenant, if they do what he says. Comments and questions? One of the things in verse 9 he says he'll do is he'll confirm his covenant with them, you know. One of the blessings of it is that they'll be reassured. Amen. Other comments? Well, I think he's saying uh, that there'll be so much crops that they'll still be eating on the old and have to clear them out to make way for the new. So I think it's just like this super abundance of crops. Yeah, that's right. They just, they, I mean, wouldn't it have been great if they'd have been faithful? I mean, look at all this. Wouldn't this have been wonderful? You know, wouldn't this have been a great way to have described, you know, the reigns of Zedekiah and Hoshea and all these guys? If they'd have been faithful, look at how differently the story would have turned out. It would have just been wonderful. It would. God is still into that preaching to the Gentiles? Sure. The promise to Abraham was that through Abraham's seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. So God's plan was through the Jews to bless all the families of the earth. That wasn't because of uh, their punishment or anything. So Jesus still would have come if the Israelites had been obedient? Yes. There still would have been a need. Yeah, because... Israel wasn't the only nation, so... And even Israel, even if they were obedient, they weren't perfect. They needed a sacrifice for even their sins, even if they'd have been faithful, basically. You know, faithful people still sin sometime, or they've sinned, and they still need forgiveness. Yeah, we would have... If we are obedient and faithful to Him, He will bless us, you know, and bring us to heaven, but... We still wouldn't be able to do that without Jesus, no matter how obedient and faithful we've been. Precisely. <clears throat> Other comments and questions? Well, that's in the briefer section, because that's really not, as the Lord knows, what the scenario will be. It's kind of what it would have been. Uh, but what it will be is the next section, which is, wow, there's a ton to this. Um, So let's start with 14 to 26.
17, what will happen? There's going to be terror and basically slavery. And they're going to have uh, other people, their enemies, ruling over them, which I don't think any of us would want that to happen to us. Very devastating. They'll be defeated, they'll be ruled over by their enemies. They'll be so paranoid, they'll flee when nobody's pursuing them. Because they are, um, you know, an easy prey for their enemies. Not only that, what else in verse 16? Yes, sickness, disease, plagues. Um, So, 16 and 17 is bad. You know, you got all these plagues plus the uh, severe defeat... Uh, against their enemies. That's what's going to happen if they don't obey. Now, you would think that would make you cry uncle. However, if also, verse 18, after these things you do not obey me, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins. If the people persist in their rebellion, God will unleash even harsher curses. He will he will discipline them more severely. It's kind of like saying the first dose of medicine doesn't do it. I'll give you a little something stronger. Seven times stronger in this case. And so what is that in 19 and 20? Yeah. Pride is such a barrier between God and man. He's going to break their pride by doing what? Land on the first 
Yes. By making the uh, sky like iron, what happens with an iron sky? Yeah, it doesn't rain. <laughs> and, uh, you know, your earth will become like bronze. It will be parched and, and hard. Uh, your strength will be spent uselessly. All of your effort will be to no avail. Uh, and there will be no, no fruitfulness, no food supply. You know, we're just kind of going through these a step at a time. You know, and, and he sort of follows this pattern. You don't obey, I'll do this. You still don't obey, seven times worse, I'll do this. Still don't obey, seven times worse, I'll do this, etc. So, but I'll pause here. Uh, comments and questions to verse 20. I think that even though it's We've always known the people of Israel to be ignorant people, and I think this shows even more of this, because God lays out for them. He tells them like it is. If you obey, you're going to be blessed. If you don't obey, you're going to be cursed. And I think that part of that is they may have been, to an extent, obedient at first, but then they fall away over the easy influences of, of the surrounding nations. And I think sometimes we allow that to influence us to do wrong as Christians from surrounding influences and one of our duties as a Christian is to be different and I think that one of the reasons we're given the Old Testament is to learn from Israel's mistakes. Amen. I think God was going to age you on compared to what they should have done. Well, like yeah, well just keep reading. <laughs> 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 it gets pretty bad. It's funny how often you think with persistence um, you know, the punishment will be during these if you know we keep on having to you know make, make you know, somebody punish us and then finally they'll either get you know tired of doing it or they'll just be like, you know, what's the use? They aren't learning anything. But you always see that bad. it's persistent. The punishment gets worse and worse and worse. Um, and you should see that we can, you know, Absolutely. Um, you know, we should never think that, well, God's already punished all he's going to. We don't have anything more to worry about. You know, he can't do anything worse to us. <laughs> right. He can always do worse. And if we continue in sin, he will. And if anything shows it, it's this passage that keeps you know, just intensifying. <laughs> you know, when you think it couldn't get any worse, you just keep sinning and find out. Reminds you of John 5.14 where God told the lame man, Jesus told the lame man, who had been lame for, what, 38 years or something like that, you know, don't sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. You think, what could be worse than being paralyzed for 38 years? Well, a whole lot of stuff, you know? Particularly uh, eternity without God. <laughs> You're right. Not only that, but if you really know that you're doing it wrong, you you're tor- you end up torturing yourself mentally as well. I mean, it, if you if your conscience isn't around the right place, it really bothers you. 
should. It should. But here he's mostly looking at just the objective punishments God's going to bring on them. You might think about this in connection with this kind, these kinds of statements. Look at the preaching of the prophets and how often they charge the people with breaking the covenant and threaten them with what? These very penalties. And you look at the punishments God does give and what does he give? These very things. You don't find very much fulfillment of 3 to 13 in the history of Israel, but you find a lot of fulfillment of 14 to 39. Because <laughs> they were mostly disobedient, and so they mostly got punished. Which is interesting because lots of times when prophecies are made, they are made very drastically to where sometimes it didn't even happen that way. Um, this moon turning to blood and all of that. But this did happen. Now, all of these things did come true, and it's very serious. <coughs> we really need to, to uh, listen carefully when God threatens. You know, uh, you've maybe uh, been in situations with your parents, or teachers, or even the boss, who may issue idle threats. You know, your parents said, if you do that again, you know, I'll tear your, you know, tongue out of your mouth or whatever. You know, and you know it's not going to happen. You know, you know they won't do that. You know, but I mean, you hear that. You know, we will, we'll hear things that, that we realize, <laughs> that's a joke. You know, well, God doesn't. Don't, don't think of him that way. When he gives a threat, he'll do it. You know, he doesn't just, you know, say something just because he gets mad and he's just blowing off steam and saying something he doesn't even intend to do. God doesn't do it that way. It shouldn't happen once. You're right. Um, in verse 19, uh, I don't want to be making too big of a deal about this, but I will also break down your pride of power. It wasn't the pride of their power. It was just their pride of power. It wasn't them that was they, they weren't the ones that had the power. It was God that gave them so many blessings. But their pride of that. that yeah, it's bad when you're proud of that which really isn't yours. Which is, they had no power on their own, so you're right. None of us really technically have anything to be proud of because we have what we have because God has been merciful enough to give it to us. Exactly. First Corinthians 4, 7. What do you have that you didn't receive? You know, if you received it, why do you boast as if you've not received it? As I read a comment on that passage one time and I've always liked, you know, some people were born on third base and they act like they hit a triple. You know, we've been blessed with all these things by God and we think we've achieved it. 21 and 22. If then you act with hostility against me and are unwilling to obey me, I will increase the plague on you seven times according to your sins. And what will this punishment be? Well, that was the beast of the field. Yeah. The wild animals destroying you. Uh, and destroying your children and your cattle. 
And verse 23, if by these things you are not turned to me, but act with hostility against me, then I will act with hostility against you, and I, even I, will strike you seven times for your sins. And this time what in 25 and 26? Execute vengeance. And what kind of vengeance? By sword. Yeah. Disease, uh, defeat. He said, I'll break your staff of bread. Ten women will bake your bread in one oven. You know, uh, I don't know exactly how they were, but probably not much different from us in this. They didn't have electric ovens or anything, but uh, typically, um, how many ovens would you expect there to be in a culture? Yeah, every woman has her own oven. Well, here, one oven for ten women. There's so little food, uh, they don't need one oven per woman. You know, ten women can, can use one. Um, so this is how all, the, all the, the, you know, punishments up to this point for their, their disobedience. Every time they continue resisting, seven times more, seven times more. Comments and questions to 26. How would they have known that this was the Lord striking them down? Because, I mean, I know it would be easy just to think that, for them to think that it would be just rare chance that they're having all these problems. Because the Lord says here now, or because there were prophecies against them. Well, maybe a little of both. But the fact is, that's exactly what they did. They often did not see God's hand in it. They often did not attribute it. In fact, one of the most outrageous passages in all of the Old Testament. In Jeremiah 44, when they had the majority of the nation had been taken into Babylonian captivity and the remnant ended up fleeing to Egypt. The nation had been destroyed. It's just so ridiculous. Even then, you know why they said they'd been destroyed? Well, because they had stopped offering sacrifices to the to the uh, goddess, the queen of heaven. That's what happened. We, we quit offering sacrifices to her. Isn't that ridiculous? Isn't that outrageous? You know, God, you know, people are just, they don't want to see God as the cause. You know, anything can happen. It's not God. You know, it's anything else. But they don't, they don't attribute it properly. But we have this passage. They had this passage. Some specific statements of prophets as well. But many times the prophets are going back to the, these passages like Leviticus 26 parallel and Deuteronomy 28 the curses of the covenant and just applying those. So, you know, this is our divine guide to what these things mean. Um, and, and we're so much the same way today. I think one of the biggest failings we have is the failing to recognize the hand and activity of God in the things that happen. We are so much into not seeing God where he is. We will, we will attribute it to luck, we'll attribute it to skill, we'll attribute it to a zillion things, coincidence, or whatever. Time and chance, we abuse that passage. But we don't see that it's the Lord. And that's, you know, one of the greatest blasphemies, really, that we offer. I did anything else to 26? You know how we talked about idols earlier? Yeah. Well, um, 
You know, I kind of don't exactly understand why the people even do that. Because it's man-made. It's yeah. man-made. And, I mean, if, I mean, they kind of think of, think of the eyes of a god. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, that's kind of like thinking of Logan as a god. I mean, it's just a normal human doing something that we can all do. I mean, we can all find a penny on the floor and sell the worship of that, on the other hand, we often do tend to trust in ourselves and and worship ourselves. That is our problem a lot of the time. That was their problem. Players and like sports players and stuff they start worshiping themselves and thinking I'm so great. Or sometimes we struggle with that. Yeah. Too. What we don't often realize is that people that the celebrities, I guess you could say, that we tend to worship it. If we get drawn into it too much, it takes us a very long time to realize that most of them are not godly people. Mm -hmm. And often much to the other extreme of that. Mm -hmm. And so that's another reason why we need to continue studying our Bibles and continue being diligent servants of God because if we don't see that none of see how I'll put this. If we don't see that these that we're not to worship things here on earth, that we're not to put anything above God, then we start losing sight of that and even drawing more into worldliness. Mm -hmm. Part of which is, I guess you could say, worshiping the celebrities. Mm -hmm. Could be. And we could be like so good at something. We could be like professional basketball player or something. But I mean God made us. God made something special. I mean, we can be good at something, but, yeah, we're great, but God made something. Absolutely. Now think about this in this section. Look at 3 to 13, the blessings, and contrast this with 14 to 26, the curses. What do you see when you start looking at them and making contrasts? Basically, opposites like if they yes like what what give me some specific opposites the beasts yes the verse 6 versus with verse 22 they will eat you yeah exactly this is going to be a key is it no but if it were I don't want you to object Alan, you gotta learn about these chiasms. You gotta respect them. Yes. No, I don't. I don't think that I didn't find a chiasm here, but just don't worship this chiasm. <laughs> <laughs> what? What else? Verses four and twenty. It says in verse four that I shall give you rains in their season, so the land will yield its produce, and the trees of the field will bear their fruit. And then verse twenty. It says, your strength will be spent uselessly, for your land will not yield its produce, and the trees of the land will not yield their fruit. Perfect. Yeah. And, and, and even with verse 19, the drought versus the abundant rain. Good. What else? The enemies, that they'll chase their enemies, and then after verse. Yes. Very good. Exactly. And then verse 10, you'll be able to fight that deal because of the 
Good. Verse 10 uh, against verse 26. Very good. What else? Look at uh, verse uh, 9 and verse 17. You see that one? Turn toward you or set my face against you. That, that's a powerful one right there. Um, and, and, and really probably several more if you want to look for specifics. That just gives you the idea of that. Uh, they really are, you know, mirror images of each other. Alright, anything else you want to say through 26? 26. Seven to thirty-nine. Yet in spite of this, you do not obey me, but act with hostility against me. Then I will act with wrathful hostility against you, and I, even I, will punish you seven times for your sins. Further, you will eat the flesh of your sons, and the flesh of your daughters you will eat. I then will destroy your high places and cut down your incense altars, and heap your remains on the remains of your idols. For my soul shall abhor you. I will lay waste your cities as well, and will make your sanctuaries desolate. I will not smell your soothing aromas. And I will make the land desolate, so that your enemies who settle in it will be appalled over it. You, however, I will scatter among the nations, and I will draw out a sword after you, as your land becomes desolate and your cities become waste. Then the land will enjoy its Sabbaths all the days of the desolation, while you were, while you are in your enemy's land. Then the land will rest and enjoy its Sabbaths all the days of its desolation. It will observe the rest of which it did not observe on your Sabbaths, while you were living on it. As for those of you who may be left, I will also bring weakness into their hearts and the lands of their enemies, and the sound of a driven leaf will chase them, and even. And even when no one is pursuing, they will flee, as though from the sword, and they will fall. They will therefore stumble over each, each other, as if running from the sword, although no one is pursuing, and you will have no strength to stand up before your enemies. But you will perish among the nations, and your enemies' land will cons- consume you. So those of you who may be left will rot away because of their iniquity in the lands of your enemies, and also because of the iniquities of their forefathers, they will rot away with them. So, if they still don't obey, God will be wrathful and punish you seven times for your sins. Look at these punishments. Verse 29. Children. Why would you eat your own children? Starvation. 
Then in 30 to 32. Make the land desolate. Yes. Desolation, destruction, uh, devastation, both of the um, objects of their worship, their idols, their high places and so forth, their cities, their sanctuaries, their land will be desolate. And then in 33, what? They'll be sent into exile. They'll be scattered among the nations, which will have an interesting result. Verse 34 and 35, when God kicks the Israelite, Israelites out or off of his land, what happens to the land? Yes. It's like the land will be able to settle down to a long nap to recover from this sleep deficit. You know, because they haven't been giving the land its every seven year rest. I take it for a good long while. And therefore, he'll just remove them to where their land can get caught up on all the rest they haven't been giving it. And they were in captivity for how long? 70 years. Uh, I don't know that this was literal, but if it was, how many years would that mean they weren't uh, giving it its rests? Maybe 490 years. Whatever. It's been a lot of uh, accumulated deficit that they need to give their land. That was a little off. She's like, <laughs> I was processing the calculation and they come up with a different number. <laughs> well, hell, yeah. What's the same number of times you're supposed to forgive somebody? So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thank you for that. Uh, sure, there's an inner connection there. Yeah. Um, it's interesting with the way. Um, it's a blessing to the land to get kicked out. Um, I mean, not only when they sin do they in turn curse themselves, punishment fall upon themselves, but the land is hurt. The land um, does poorly, and by taking it out, God is almost favoring the land over more more than them. Uh, he's showing the land favor uh, because they are not doing this right. Yeah, I guess in a way you can see the land is what has been mistreated and uh, harmed, and so God acts to, uh, you know, correct this injustice. And you see in 36 to 39 what happens. Yeah, the enemies. And I'll tell you, it's just, you know, such a, uh, such a devastating thing for them. I will also bring weakness into their hearts in the land of their enemies. And the sound of a driven leaf will chase them. <laughs> you know, they're going to be so panic-stricken that even a wind-blown leaf will terrify them and they'll flee. You know, you see them becoming, you know, paranoid. And, and and just falling all over themselves to get away from even their own imaginations. Uh, they'll stumble over each other, running and trying to get away. And they'll perish in their enemies' lands and left to rot away in the lands of their enemies. It's just very strong, uh, powerful expressions of the, the punishment that God will bring on them. Comments? 
happened with our enemies a couple of times, at least once, where the enemies would hear something, hear a sound, and, and run away. Yeah, that's a good, good observation. Uh, what all passages can we come up with? I've never tried to categorize them that way, but where where the enemies fled because of a sound. Which one was that? That was where they fought that city twice. Was that Second Samuel five with the Philistines? Yeah. Yeah, so that's right. Yeah, I think you're right. I think Second Samuel five is one of them uh, with yeah, the Philistines. Yeah. Twenty-four. Yeah, Second Samuel five twenty-four. <sighs> I made this easy. Hello. Yes. Yeah, but that's fine. fled because of a sound. The sound of the rumor of war in another country. Yes, that's an interesting <laughs> idea. Call it a sound. Well, I'm thinking of the time, was it in Joshua 10 or somewhere with the thundering? <laughs> no, it's not right. Where is the thunder? Isn't there a time when the they fled because of the thunder? And that too. Now, oh, what about Second Samuel seven? No, Second uh, Kings seven, six or seven, seven, with the uh, Arameans fleeing because they heard the sound of troops yeah. and uh, fled, and that's where the lepers went and they got all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. They caused them to hear the army. Uh, the Arameans yeah. to hear the sound of chariots, the sound of horses. That's Second Kings seven six. But I'm still thinking there's a time when the Lord thundered and routed the armies. Where was that? That wasn't in Judges, was it? Maybe it was. No, that was the rain. The overflowing of the brook. There was a time when uh, the when Gideon was a judge and the people were frightened. Yeah, I mean, that may be sort of a sound. Yeah. Those are some interesting questions. You know, I have a... I've never thought about it from those categories. So, you might keep thinking about that. There may be some others. I don't remember how I got off onto that, but... Interesting bypass. I have a question. Okay. Uh, 
and the curses of Israel, if there were some that were still faithful to God were there, would they be saved from the things like uh, the beasts coming after them and things like that? As far as the death goes? Yeah. You have this question mark about what would happen to the righteous remnant of the Israelites when the majority are being punished. And I think the answer is God protected them spiritually but not necessarily physically. Ezekiel 9 shows God marking and sparing his people from his judgments, but Ezekiel 21 said the sword would kill the righteous and the wicked. I think the answer is the righteous might be physically affected by the fallout from the punishment of the wicked, but they would be spiritually spared by God. Because I would just wonder, I mean, you wouldn't think that God would save the righteous from the famine because then others would be able to come and glean. Well, and it's a little difficult to do that. You just rain on, you know, the righteous yeah, person's farm. Yeah, I was and thinking you just, you just rain on... Like, or does the enemy come and knock on your door and say, if you're faithful to God, we won't kill you? You know, in, in actual fact, righteous people are... They do suffer physically from the uh, effects of God's judgments on the wicked, but they, they're still close to God, and God protects them in the ways that really count. That's amazing. Jeremiah 40 and follow. It's just instances like that where they show no strength, no stability, where anything scares them. Where there wasn't even really a threat. That's a good point. That's a good illustration of that. Yeah. Are there comments and questions? Recently, somebody and I won't be able to say it as well as he did, but it's just the idea like that when you do right, God blesses you. When you do wrong, God punishes you. And it was a really simple idea, but I don't think we always see that. I don't know. We're like, uh, we're taking something with how we feel, or, you know, I want to feel happy or whatever, and how do I get what I want to get? Well, you know, if you want to be blessed, you do right. And if you're, you know, if you do wrong, you're not going to be blessed. Yes. Mm-hmm. He seems to address that. Like, every break in this discussion here, you know, in, in the very first of the chapter, he says that if you do the laws I'm giving you, then these blessings will come to you. And verse 14 and 21 and 23 and so on and so forth, when he says, you know, if you're not doing the things I've told you to, then this is the exact reason that these curses are going to come on you. So that they know for sure that it isn't time and chance. Good point. That's pretty much saying that you can get punished, or you need to choose. Mm-hmm. Although, there's also an exception to that if you're righteous and then the rest of them aren't. There's not much you can do about that. Yeah, you can still serve the Lord and, you know, 
God will bless you ultimately, even if you are affected by his punishment. Amen. Amen. Sorry. Go ahead. I didn't mean a lot about that. And this reminds me of Revelation after all the calamities come that people still curse God. And that, you know, they shake their fists at him for, for doing this. And they don't realize it's their choice. And I've been thinking about that with some people that haven't done well, where they think, oh, this is all happening to me, and why? When they made that choice. And that God is very clear in his promises to us as well. And when we are punished for things we do wrong, we should be humble and get on our knees and beg for forgiveness and not shake our fist at God. And we're not very effective when we seek to fight against the Lord. I mean, that's just foolish. It's wrong, but it's also, I mean, what do we think? What do we think we're going to accomplish with that? One of the dumbest things that we as humans ever do is God tells us to do something, we do the opposite, and then we scream and get mad at God because He gives us what we deserve. Yeah. Other thoughts and comments on this? Sorry, on, on the... Through 39. Yes, on the fleeing from the sound, the First Samuel 7 mentioned, uh, I just ran a search. First Samuel 7.10. Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, and the Philistines drew near the battle against Israel, but the Lord turned with a great time That's on the day against the Philistines and confused them. They were routed to I'd forgotten that's where that was, but yeah, that's it. All right, good. I knew there was thunder somewhere. That's oh, good. Uh, that that's a really interesting uh, study. Uh, somebody ought to ought to give some more thought to that and come up with uh, some kind of a lesson about you know fleeing at the sound of or whatever. Yeah. He's our what? He's our Yeah, that's right. You can just flesh that one out. The righteous supper that was brought up uh, reminded me of what we talked about Elijah on Sunday, that he was affected by the drought as well. Even though he pronounced the drought, he wasn't exempt from the effects. God provided for him. You're right. Other thoughts? How about 40 to 46? If they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their forefathers and their unfaithfulness which they committed against me and also in their acting with hostility against me, I also was acting with hostility against them to bring them into the land of their enemies. Or if the uncircumcised uncircumcised heart becomes humbled so that they then make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob, and I will remember also my covenant with Isaac, and my covenant with Abraham as well, and I will remember the land. For the land will be abandoned by them, and will make up for its Sabbath while, they, while it is made desolate without them. They, meanwhile, will be making amends for their iniquity. Because they rejected my ordinances and their soul abhorred my statutes. 
Yet, in spite of this, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not reject them, nor will I so abhor them as to destroy them, breaking my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. But I will remember for them the covenant with their ancestors, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in sight of the nations, that I might be their God. I am the Lord. These are the statutes and ordinances and laws which the Lord established between himself and the sons of Israel through Moses on Mount Sinai. Well, this is an interesting uh, uh, addendum to this chapter because this goes one step further and it's talking about what situation? If they repent after being punished. Um, you know, God was, was against them. His wrath was poured out upon them. But they confessed their iniquity. They humble themselves. They turn back to God. What would God do? You remember the covenant. This is a stunning emphasis of God's willingness to bless when they repent. That's exactly what this shows. God's curses and God's judgments are not his final word. He wants to restore his people. And he will do that even when they are in the land of their enemies. God would not abhor them to destroy them, but he would remember them. When they repent, he will bless them again. Um, it, God's, God's grace and mercy is so amazing because we get to the point with some people that we've given up. You know, no matter what they do after that, we're cold toward them. You know, there's no way to, to get us to, to ever uh, accept them again. God is not like that. You know, if they'll repent, he will bless them again. After all of this, it is amazing that even in this chapter, the bottom line is God's mercy on the penitent people. Comments and thoughts. Look at all the things God forgives us for. I mean, we sin day after day. And I mean, somebody can come along and make one, one bad choice or do something wrong and we're We'll never be able to forgive anyone else as much as God forgives us. They've never done as much against us as we've done against God. Take pride 
Hamlet's a guess. Um, kind of like what David was talking about in like Psalm 51 near the end, where he talks about a humble and contrite heart. We just set aside our pride and just confess to God, which is like a really hard thing to do. That's what that's kind of interesting. Go ahead. God's just not amazing. In verse 45, he concludes by saying, I am the Lord. Have you heard that before? I believe, I read this, I didn't count them, that this is the last of the 49 instances of I am the Lord in Leviticus. This is interesting. And this is sort of the summing up. These are the statutes and ordinances. You know, this is this is the choice that God is putting before his people. Here it is. Here's my will. Now it's up to them, and the consequences will follow. Other comments and questions? I think it's interesting that he promises the uh, remembrance of the covenant to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Because when he would remember that covenant, he would have already fulfilled a couple of those. He would have already given them the land. But they needed to get the land again because they'd be in captivity. And they had already been multiplied, but God had struck them down because they were disobedient. They would need to be multiplied again. But I guess in all of that, those blessings, especially that of Jesus um, was a lot more important than the blessings at the beginning of the chapter. Um, that they would have enough food and they would have peace. That those are the things that should have meant more to him. Mm-hmm. And he was willing to give, he brings up that promise and those blessings after all these sins and all this time spent on punishing. Yeah. Not the beginning. If you keep punishing this, then I will remember. The blessings for those who've been disobedient. And, uh, you know, he never forgets his covenant and, and you know, he just, uh, he, get, he, he does, he blesses them in the best possible way. Other comments? I'll let you decide. Do you want to break here before we do 27? Or do you want to go straight on and do 27? You okay to finish here? Section six. Huh? <laughs> what? We're, okay. Chapter 27. If this were written like a modern book, I think chapter 27 would be like an appendix. I really think chapter 26 ends the main body of work in Leviticus. Chapter 27 is kind of uh, 
a, a sort of an extra section uh, dealing with some specific instructions about vows. So it may seem a little odd to put here, but if you think of this as being like the appendix, an appendix to the book, here's a, you know, a guide to vows. You know, it kind of didn't really fit in the book as a whole, but it's something that they need. That may be a good way of looking at 27. At least that's the way I'd look at that. So, would somebody read 1 to 8? Again, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When a man makes a difficult vow, he shall be valued according to your valuation of persons belonging to the Lord. If your valuation is of the male from 20 years even to 60 years old, then your valuation shall be 50 shekels of silver after the shekel of the sanctuary. Or if it is a female, then your valuation shall be 30 shekels. If it be from five if it be from five years, even to twenty years old, then your valuation for the male shall be twenty shekels, and for the female ten shekels. But if they are from a month, even up to five years old, then your valuation shall be five shekels of silver for the male, and for the female your valuation shall be three shekels of silver. If they are from sixty years old and upward, if it is a male, then your valuation shall be fifteen shekels, and for the female ten shekels. But if he is... Hello. But if he is poor, then your valuation, then he shall be placed before the priest, and the priest shall value him. According to the means of the one who vowed, the priest shall value him. Alright. Now, there's a lot of uh, things that are a little complicated about this chapter. But we first of all need to get a general handle on what he's talking about. He's talking about when you make a vow. Now, when you vowed something to God, it's like you made a promise that you would give something to God. This is not where you're, you are commanded to give something. There were certain things that you had to give, like a tenth, and the first fruits, and some things like that. These are voluntary things where you didn't have to give, you didn't have to make the promise to give it. But if you do make a promise to give something to God, you make a vow. What must you do? You must fulfill it. There's several passages that talk about that. We might be most familiar with Ecclesiastes 5, where he says, it's better not to vow than to vow and not pay. If you, you know, you might not have had to have made the promise. There might not have been any, you know, specific requirement that you promised that. But if you choose to do that, you must, you must pay it. In Deuteronomy 23, 21, when you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it, for it would be sin in you, and the Lord your God will surely require it of you. However, if you refrain from vowing, it would not be sin in you. You shall be careful to perform what goes out from your lips, just as you voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you've promised. So, you don't have to make the vow. You make the vow, you better pay the vow. That's the point that he's making. Again, in Numbers 30, verse 2, if a man makes a vow to the Lord and takes an oath to bind himself with a binding obligation, he shall not violate his word, he shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. You make the vow, you must pay. You can't play around with God. You can't trifle with Him. You can't make a commitment to God and not, not go through with it. 
Now, that brings up some interesting questions before we even think about the chapter as a whole. Um, is it okay to make vows to God? Yes. Yes. It is. Um, I know of two different people. This is an example, and a pretty relevant example, because these are real illustrations of people that I know. I know one Brazilian and one American who made vows uh, that related to marriage. One who made a vow that they would not marry until their ex-girlfriend married and one who made a vow that after their divorce they would never marry again. And, you know, I don't believe either one of those were obligatory vows because the divorce was for fornication and certainly somebody who's single can, can marry. And, and the single person who vowed that they would not marry until their ex-girlfriend had married. Um, that person was, you know, in the early 20s and really was interested in having relationships with girls made the vow perhaps at a low point in their life do you have to keep that vow? Yes. I believe so and uh, he did for several years and within the last six months the girlfriend has married and so now he is released from that vow I don't think that was a very smart vow to make personally <laughs> but he made the vow he had to keep it he and introduced her to everybody he knew. <laughs> he did what? Introduced her to every guy he knew. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was rooting for her. Uh, this to go well. Um, he her? Do what? Yes. No, he could marry her. Okay. It was really saying that, I mean, his vow was a little more detailed than that. It was that he wouldn't marry until she proved that she really wasn't interested in him by marrying someone else. Uh, but... Um, I don't think it was very wise to make that vow. But once he made it, he had to fulfill it. And to his credit, here's what he did. He decided that if he wasn't going to break that vow, he simply could not allow himself to develop a relationship with a girl. He didn't date in any way. He did not allow himself to get too close to a girl. Because he was afraid that if he did that, he would be tempted so strongly that he might break the vow. Now, I think that was smart. You know, I think that was exactly the right thing. He, there were two or three times when he talked to me when he was pretty, he was struggling with it, but he kept it up for several years. And uh, those are the right things. Now, you make a vow, you keep it. Um, here, the vows are not quite like that. These vows are more the idea of vowing something to God, vowing to give something to God. And in those cases, here are rules relating to the payment of that vow. Alright, let me stop and do you have any questions or comments about vows in general before we go into this kind of technical explanation of how they make the payment of these vows? Alright, um, in verse 2, when a man makes a difficult vow, you shall be valued according to your valuation of persons belonging to the Lord. And so, here, um, if he vows, uh, say, himself to God, he pays according to 
a certain valuation of a person. And the valuation is based upon, I think, the amount of work that you could expect that person to perform. That really tells you how valuable he is. And therefore, how much he ought to be valued. This would be either if you value yourself or if you value someone else uh, that would be under your control to God. If, if, and the variables in, in determining the, the worth of a person, what it takes to redeem that vow, is based upon the gender and age of the person. If the person's from one to five, a male is worth five shekels, a female three. From five to twenty, the male is worth twenty shekels, and the female ten. From twenty to sixty, the male is worth fifty shekels, and the female thirty. Age 60 and above, the male is worth 15 shekels, and the female 10 shekels. That's the valuation. So if you value yourself or someone else to God, that's what you pay. That's the worth of that person. Now, as often in uh, Leviticus, in verse 8, there's a provision for what? Yes. And if the person is poor, then the priest makes a special valuation. The poor have been provided for, especially now five times in Leviticus, which is interesting. In the sacrificial system in chapter 1, verses 14 to 17. In the purification offering in chapter 5, verses 1 to 13. In connection with the sacrifices with a mother giving birth, chapter 12, verses 6 to 8. And in the context of cleansing from leprosy, in chapter 14, verses 21 to 32. God, over and over again, makes special provision for the poor to be able to fulfill the covenant. Alright, comments and questions through verse 8. Is this what happened when you dedicated someone to the Lord? Like the well, Samuel actually, the vow was fulfilled by taking him and giving him to the Lord's service. But when, because the Lord wanted that to be done. But ordinarily, if you dedicated or vowed someone to the Lord, then you would actually pay the Lord a corresponding amount to the value of that person's service, and you wouldn't actually give the person to the Lord. So what about like Samson? Would that be where he was vowed to the Lord. I mean, I guess the Lord vowed. I think the Lord vowed him. I don't think he was really vowed to the Lord in quite the same sense. You might not want to get into this, but I've been thinking a lot about Jeff's vows and what he might want to comment on. On if you make a vow, then you probably shouldn't forget, or what you really intended by his vow. Well, my view is that he made essentially a pagan vow that he tried to bargain with God and 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 offered the Lord a human sacrifice in exchange for victory which shows how far gone Jephthah and the Israelites were at that point he had no business making or keeping that vow um, you know to redeem the person perhaps in accordance with this would have been appropriate but I don't think he's even thinking in those terms. I think he intended to offer a human sacrifice. I had no idea it'd be his daughter. You know. And that it's just an outrage all the way around. That's my view uh, of that. And so I think Jephthah is not, he's not thinking spiritually. It was okay to vow a person to God. Not to vow to make the sacrifice of the person like he did. But to vow a person to God. And then you pay the corresponding valuation to the Lord. So what? Uh, once Jephthah made that vow, 
would it have been sinful whether or not he would have kept the vow? Yes. I believe it's sinful to make a sinful vow. It's wrong to vow to do to, to God to do something wrong. Do you think he vowed to do Yes. I do. And you know, it, it would be wrong, for example, um, to make any sinful promise. It would be wrong to sign an agreement, you know, um, to defraud someone, to cheat someone. And what do you do if you make a sinful vow? Well, two wrongs don't make a right. Don't fulfill a sinful vow. That's just committing another sin. You already made the sinful vow. Don't keep it if keeping it would involve you in committing another sin. That's like Herod vowing to Herodias' daughter. The, the vow was sinful. You should never vow a blank check. And then to keep it involved in another sin, he shouldn't have kept it. You should break a sinful vow, but you were wrong to have made the vow. But a second wrong doesn't help you any. <laughs> it just compounds the error. Other comments or questions to verse 8? It's not equal rights. Well, yeah, but, I mean, the woman gets off light. You know, but I think it's really the, the value of service. Wouldn't it be an annual by chance? No, I think it's one time. I think so. I mean, we're, I mean, yeah. I mean, could it be? I vow myself for three years. Is it three times? You know, I just. Oh, I don't what, know about that. What is that? Because anywhere from age twenty to sixty is the same value. I think it depends on the age of the person when they made the, when the vow was made regarding them. Right. It's a one-time thing. That's, something, yeah, just, no. that's my guess. That's what I thought. I don't know. I could be wrong. But if so, I'll be the last two minutes. As, as to the value, would, would the man have been worth more just because of, I guess, for the value as if they were slaves? Because usually the, I get, I don't know, if the women slaves just worked in the kitchen. <laughs> a man is generally stronger and could do more physical labor. They were also barefoot and pregnant. <laughs> well, I agree. You're right on, Logan. I agree. <laughs> but you never make any comments about women in the mixed company or the women will crucify you. So. <laughs> you told me that was that. Whoa. Oh. No, I didn't. No, I didn't. <laughs> you, you inferred that. I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> they said no comments. That's the same thing. All right. Uh, 9 to 13. Made an animal as an offering to the Lord. All that anyone gives to the Lord shall be Lord. He shall not substitute it or exchange it good for bad or for good, and if it be at all exchange of animals for animals, then both it and the one exchange for it shall be void. It is an unclean animal which they do not offer as a sacrifice to the Lord, 
Then you shall present this animal before the priest. And the priest shall set a value for it, whether it is good or bad, and, and as you, as you, the priest values it, so it shall be. But if he wants at all to redeem it, then he must add one fifth to the value. Okay. So, animals that are vowed. Now, there's two kinds of animals you can vow. A clean animal or an unclean animal. The clean animals, verses 9 and 10. You vow the clean animal to the Lord. What should you do with it? <coughs> Sacrifices. Exactly. It's a clean animal. It can be sacrificed. So it's to be given to the Lord. What must he not do? Well, that true, that's true, true also. But with a clean animal, what must he not do? Or yeah, he can't substitute another animal for it. He vowed, you know, Bessie. He's got to offer Bessie. You know, he can't, he can't put any other animal in Bessie's place. Why? Why might he want to exchange another animal for it? Yeah. You know, maybe after he's thought it over and his maybe cooler calculated uh, analysis has taken taken hold, he realizes, ooh, I think that was a lot to vow. I think I'd rather give this one. God won't allow that. You know, we ought never to regret something we give to God in the first place. And really, our cooler, more calculated feelings are the wrong ones. The feelings that we have of what we want to give God in our in our peak is really much more what God deserves. Um, what was what if he tried to substitute some other animal for Bessie? What was to happen? Yeah, exactly. Well, that just is another animal the Lord gets. It doesn't relieve him of the necessity of uh, sacrificing Bessie. So, you know that that's what both of them become holy. Both of them are given to God. But now, if it's an unclean animal, he can't sacrifice an unclean animal to God, so what's to be done? To do what? Yes, exactly. Um, the, he was to, to offer what, whatever the priest uh, told him. Um, and uh, he could redeem the vow but he had to add a 20% surcharge to it to, to redeem that. Um, so, this, you know, the clean animal, he's got to sacrifice it. The unclean animal, he was to pay the valuation that the priest offered. So, what kind of sacrifice would they have to do for it? Because, I mean, there is a lot of different ways you do a sacrifice in the Old Testament. So, does it say anything about what specific type of sacrifice it was to be? No. Why would they? <laughs> however, however, I would imagine it to be a peace offering because one of the peace offerings was the vow offering, the votive offering. So that's my guess as to what it would be. Why? Why would they? Why would he need to put in here that they should not replace a race? Replace it with a better. 
Oh, you, you discussed why they would be tempted to replace it with one of lesser value. Why, why would he include don't, don't replace it with something better? Well, that's an excellent question. It strikes me that that wouldn't normally be what they'd try. Um, I, it may be just a matter of you got to fulfill your vow to God. You know, you vowed this one. I don't care if you got a better one. You better give the one you vowed to God. At least do that. You want to get the better one too? That's okay. But just maybe a matter of you got to fulfill your your word to God. That's all I know. Um, but um, what would happen if you were about to to offer um, one of the better ones, but then later on it kind of got sick or something before you to offer? Yeah, I don't know. But you still gotta you gotta pay what you vow. Sacrifice that one still because you 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 had vowed to that one. But I mean, also, he says, he says that he doesn't want the worst, he should do the best, which is... Well, it sounds kind of like an instantaneous thing. You bring the cow and say, here it is, this is what I'm offering. Shouldn't be delayed. Before it gets to the altar, I guess. Probably will. Amanda. The only reason I can come up with is to why they'd want to like offer something better is maybe they felt guilty about not giving better than they wanted to. Unless it, unless it could be uh, this one's more sentimental value to me, so I want to give this one instead. Or if you could say, say, or if you could say, well, this one looks better to me, but it could, they they would try, they could try to substitute with their own opinion of what's better, and it could not be better. Nobody really wants to get Bessie, no matter how broken down she is. I don't know and I don't know. Okay, like, well, in general, I'm just wondering why, I mean, you just say, I want to give this animal, and in specific, like, I'm wondering, why would you say an unclean animal or a bad animal? Like, why would you suddenly decide to give that animal to God? Um, I don't know. Maybe, uh... Maybe you're in a in a prayer. You're saying, "The Lord, if you'll do this, I vow to give you this." And maybe an unclean animal is what you've got. Um, or maybe you're worshiping God and you're just really thinking about how great God is, and you want to give something to Him. And here's what comes to mind. Or maybe um, something like what Britain said: the animal gets sick or becomes unclean after you vow it. Well, an animal body is going to become unclean after you vow, because that depends on the type of animal it is. You know, you see what I'm saying? <laughs> Unless the animal, you know, reverts from, a, you know, a cow to a pig. <laughs> yeah, it Well, that was kind of it. Oh, I mean, I guess 
So, like, I understand if you were worshipping or whatever, but you just, like, an unclean animal is the one that you have right then? But or? it still has value. Sure, exactly. Yeah. Well, I'm going I'm to bow this animal, and then you take it to the priest to see what the value is, and that's what you give. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, and we'll see that with some other things. That clearly, the Lord may not use, but you're promising, I'll give this to the Lord with the understanding this will be, he'll give the value of it. The same as the person. Exactly. Exactly. Why would you bow a person? Well, because it has a value that you're going to give to the Lord. I mean, think about, you know, maybe what we think a lot of times is, you know, vowing, you know, you just vow to give money. But we are more money-oriented in our society. We, you know, we everything is in terms of cash. Whereas for them, I think vowing something might have been more li- likely. Probably did more bartering. I don't know. At least that's what you see here is more of the idea of vowing something. Britain. Um, so I never really didn't understand. Um, what if it were to die? Then what would you do? I don't know. You could. Possible that I mean, it could be maybe mouth to mouth. Not everybody. It's possible that I mean, if it's dead, it's an unclean animal. I mean, it could be possible that you could take it to the priest and get the value of it when it was alive. Yeah, maybe so. I don't know. But I think we're maybe overanalyzing. <laughs> <laughs> I think we might be. So we've had people, we have animals, now we got another category, 14 to 25. 14 to 24, actually, to do that. Now if a man consecrates his house as holy to the Lord, then the priest shall value it as either good or bad, as the priest values it, so it shall stand. Yet if the one consecrates it, should wish to redeem his house, then he shall add one the evaluation price to it, so that it may be his. Again, if a man consecrates to the Lord part of the field of his own property, then your valuation shall be proportionate to the seed needed for it, uh, a homer of barley seed at fifty shekels of silver. If he consecrates his field as of the year of Jubilee, according to your valuation it shall stand. If he consecrates his field after the Jubilee, however, then the priest shall calculate the price for him proportionate to the years that are left until the year of Jubilee. It shall be deducted from your valuation. If the one who consecrated... The one who consecrates it should ever wish to redeem the field, then he shall add one fifth of your valuation price to it, so that it may pass to him. Yet if you will not redeem the field, but have sold the field to another man, it may no longer be redeemed. And when it reverts in the Jubilee, the field shall be holy to the Lord, like a field set apart, it shall be for the priest as his property. Or if he consecrates to the Lord a field which he has bought, which is not a part of the field of his own property, then the field shall calculate for him the amount of your valuation up to the year of Jubilee, and he shall, on that day, give you valuation as holy to the Lord. In the year of Jubilee, the field shall return to the one from whom we bought it, to whom the possession of the land belongs. So this is uh, vowing inanimate objects, like in 14 and 15, what? <coughs> a house. You vow a house to God, what happens? All right. The priest uh, evaluates it. The priests are sort of like cattle judges and real estate appraisers appraisers in this system. (laughs) And uh, either, I'm assuming either the house is is used by the priest, or if you want to keep the house, what do you do? Pay pay the value the priest set plus the 20% surcharge. And then you can keep the house. 
Or you consecrate a field to the Lord. You vow a field. Now that's alright. So if you vow a field, what happens? There's two options. Well, that's true too. What happens to the field? It's to rest. Well, not really. <laughs> it belongs to the priest. It belongs to the priest, but the value based on what you're sowing. It belongs to the priest until Jubilee. Jubilee. If you want to keep the field, or if you want to get it back from the priests, then you pay the valuation of the land, which has to do with the number of years of the lease, the number of years until the jubilee, plus the one-fifth. So it either just belongs to the priest until the jubilee when it comes back to you. Or if you want it, then you pay the value that's based upon the number of years, plus the 20%. Now, it gets more complicated. Um... What if um, you vow a field that you've already sold to somebody else? Then you you pay the value of it until the year Jubilee, which Mm -mm. which no, you vow a field that you've already sold to somebody else. What happens with that? In the year of Jubilee, the priest gets it. You know, it passes into the priest's possession. The year of Jubilee. Or, if you consecrate, verse 22, to the Lord, a field which you bought, which isn't really a part of your own uh, property, then you give the value of the number of years of that field to the Lord, and in the year of Jubilee, it reverts back to the person who is the owner. You couldn't permanently give to God something that you bought from somebody else that belongs back to them at the Jubilee year. You can't give to God something you borrowed or something you leased or, or whatever. But you can give to the Lord the value of those crops for those number of years. That's a little complicated, but that's the gist of this, I think. So that last one, you'd be paying double for this field. You had bought it, and then you turn around and pay the price of its value to the Lord, yes. So if you, so if you um, like pretty much rented the land to somebody, um, you, like on the day of the you get back, you turn around and get back to them, and just keep going like that, wouldn't that... Did you do that? I don't know, I guess, but why would you? More money. Do what? More money or something? Yeah, maybe, I don't know. Uh-huh. Yeah. I had other comments or questions through 24. So if the man sold the field, no, vowed it and then sold it, then the field becomes permanently increased. Yes, at the Jubilee. That's my understanding. 
permanently as in more than just the next 15 years. I think so. Okay. Because it goes back to the person and then they've got it to the priest. So if you've got it, so I they just kind of skip that step. Take it straight to the priest. Because at the Jubilee, it would come back to the person. Right. But they've got it. Right. So instead of it saying that it comes back to you and you give it, they just say it goes from them to them. Right. Exactly. Exactly. In fact, it's a big sacrifice. You lose it completely. I'm sorry. Completely, did you say it permanently? Was that your I think so. Now, I thought we said earlier you could not get rid of a piece of property like that. Mm-hmm. I guess. That's true in general. I think this is an exception. I take this as an exception. You can't give it to the Lord. All right, 25 to 34. Evaluation of yours, moreover, shall be after the shekel of the sanctuary. The shekel shall be twenty years. However, a firstborn among animals, which is as a firstborn belongs to the Lord, no man may consecrate it. Whether ox or sheep, it is the Lord's. But it is among the unclean animals. Then he shall redeem it according to your valuation, and add to it one fifth of it. And if it is not redeemed, then it shall be sold according to your valuation. Nevertheless, anything which a man sets apart to the Lord out of all that he has, of man or animal, or of the fields of his own property, shall not be sold or redeemed. Anything devoted to destruction, it is most holy to the Lord. No one who may have been set apart among men shall be ransomed. He shall surely be put to death. Thus all the tithe of the land, of the seed of the land, or of the fruit of the tree, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. If therefore a man wishes to redeem part of his tithe, he shall add to it one-fifth of it. For every tenth part of a herd or flock, whatever passes under the rod, the tenth one shall be holy to the Lord. He is not to be concerned whether it is good or bad, nor shall he exchange it. Or if he does exchange it, then both it and its substitute shall become holy. It shall not be redeemed. These are the commandments which the Lord commanded Moses for the sons of Israel at Mount Sinai. Okay. Um, We've got some specific requirements here. One is the standard of valuation and payment, verse 25. And then there's some things that you can't um, use to pay a vow. That you can't consecrate to God. Uh, like what in verse 26 and 27? Firstborn. The firstborn. Why can't you vow that to God? It's already God's. You can't get a double benefit by presenting a single animal. You know, it, it's not yours to vow to God. God's already belongs to God. Uh, so you can't consecrate it. Um, you know, if you really love God, you're not trying to get by with, you know, some shenanigans. <laughs> you want to give him things that really uh, are a sacrifice. Anyway, um, in verse 28, Nevertheless, anything which a man sets apart to the Lord out of all that he has, of man or animal, or of the fields of his own property, shall not be sold or redeemed. Anything devoted to destruction is most holy to the Lord. So you... You know, you can't do something else with what you've consecrated to God. Um, and and then the tithe belongs to God. Um, that specifically is the Lord's. And you need to give it to Him and not try to, um, you know, substitute something else. He's trying to keep them honest 
in what they give to God. They can't give something to God that belonged to him already. They can't give something to someone else that belongs to God. What, what, what is God's, that's what they have to give to him. They have to be, be just and, and honest in what they dedicate to God, and what they give to God. Comments and questions? Mm-hmm. I don't. He's saying that you've got something that is devoted to God. Um, you can't buy it back. It belongs to God. I, I'm not sure what all that might include. Um, there were things, for example, that were under a ban, like Jericho. They couldn't take anything for themselves. So it, it's been set apart, it belongs to God, you're not allowed to, to, to buy it back. So it says, no one, is that no one thing, no one? I suppose nobody could buy Aiken's redemption and let him live. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, I just didn't understand, no one. Yeah, I don't know if we mean no one person or if it would include no one thing. And here's the he, the one or the man who's in the part that shall be put to death. I mean, I understand what the word this yeah. If we connect it with the end of 28 where it says anything devoted to destruction is most holy to the Lord, maybe we should take this as people devoted to destruction and that they could not be redeemed, they needed to be put to death. Like people were under the death penalty? Right. Like the people of Jericho or Achan or whatever. I'm not sure about that, just they, reading it right they now. Pay their right. Death. You couldn't pay to get them off if they were under the, the death sentence, then that's what had to happen. That looks like it to me just looking at it right here. Other comments and questions? He concludes with an appropriate conclusion to this book. These are the commandments which the Lord commanded Moses for the sons of Israel on Mount Sinai. And I must say, we've done pretty well with the interest and the involvement and the attitude toward this study. It makes me realize how much more I need to know about the law. There's just so many more things that, you know, we really need to really study and go through all the Pentateuch, Pentateuch and, uh, you know, really really understand a lot more. But I think it's been helpful. Uh, it's certainly been helpful to me just to see your willingness to go through something this detailed and uh, with this many, this many unanswered questions and still try to get what we can out of it, try to understand it more deeply. The next time we go through it, we'll understand more. You know, especially if we've worked more on Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and things like that in the meantime. And uh, maybe we will. So, you know, we'll probably try uh, to do something like this again right after Christmas. I don't know for sure what, but uh, we'll pick a book and work on it. And uh, maybe if it's like Leviticus, work on it after Christmas and then again and then again. So, uh, but I appreciate your joining us in that and doing that. I think that's been helpful to us. I appreciate your comments and discussion, and uh, that's helpful. Um, why don't we? Uh,